Hello, church. How are you doing? Thanks, Ben. That was well read, mate. Good on you. Uh, look, if you have your Bible handy there, could I please encourage you uh, to keep it open and follow along as we go today? Today, we are looking at the second chapter of Mark, and we see a unique event that happened in Jesus' earthly ministry. Uh, it's a story that probably a lot of you have heard before, uh, but if you haven't, that's okay, because we're going to look at it a bit more closely. For me, uh, growing up in the church, this was probably what I would consider to be a, a Sunday school classic. I can clearly remember my Sunday school teachers using paper cutouts and reenacting the story on a cloth board of Jesus performing yet another, again, uh, another amazing miracle. Now, Jesus, he, he performed many miracles and he said many things during his time on earth. John records in the last chapter of his gospel account, John 21:25, that Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that could be written. So we know that scripture tells us that Jesus performed lots of miracles and he impacted and changed the lives of many people. And when we read these accounts and when we see in scripture that Jesus has the authority to heal, it's not uncommon for us to look at ourselves, to look at our pains, our sicknesses, the sicknesses of our loved ones, our situations that are in dire need of a miracle and ask, does God want to heal me? Does God care about my situation? And these are pretty big questions. But what I'd like to pose today is, are these the right questions that we should be asking when looking at a passage like this? As we look at this passage today, what is special about this particular story? Why is it in the Bible? Is there something unique about this miracle? Uh, should we be focusing on the lead-up to this miracle uh, that took place to this paralysed man being healed? Or is this story not really about a miracle at all? So let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, may it challenge us. Uh, may it encourage us. Uh, may it comfort us. Above, above all, Lord, uh, may you be glorified through it today. We pray in your great name. Amen. Now, before we start on our text today, I just want to offer a quick recap of chapter one of Mark, uh, because I think it's really important and gives us context for today's message. Mark starts his gospel account just a little bit differently to the other gospel authors. You know, he skips over the birth narrative of Jesus. And instead, he heads straight into the transition of John the Baptist, who was proclaiming, uh, preaching a baptism of repentance and proclaiming, make straight the paths of the Lord. Into Jesus' ministry of the time has come, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. So Jesus, he began moving from town to town, synagogue to synagogue, proclaiming the good news. And in Mark Chapter 1, verse 22, it tells us that the people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority and not as teachers of the law. In the preceding next few verses, we see that Jesus exercises his authority again. But this time it's over an impure spirit. 
And we see the people ask because they're amazed again at what's happened. And they ask in verse 27, what is this? It's a new teaching? And with authority, he even orders the impure spirits and they obey him. News about him spread and quickly over the whole region of Galilee. So you can imagine this great stirring that was being caused in and around Galilee. Uh, you know, not by only the things that Jesus was saying, but primarily by the things he was doing. We as humans, we're attracted to amazing things. Things that gain our attention tend to excite us. Uh, I'm attracted to watching rugby league. And if I'm not careful, I'll spend all weekend watching it. It excites me. And uh, when I agreed to preach this message about two months ago, I didn't realise that my team would be in the grand final this afternoon. So, a bit ironic. So this afternoon I might be excited or I might be sad. We'll, we'll see what happens. But... Our selfish nature, it drives us to seek out things that benefit ourselves. Uh, and I think it's fair to assume that many people who were attracted to Jesus, who followed him in the physical sense, they did so to seek answers to physical needs. In verse 35 of chapter 1, we see, however, that after a night of driving out many demons and healing many from various diseases, that Jesus gets up early in the morning, uh, he, while it's still dark, and he goes out and prays. Once again, the crowds gather in the morning, and they gather around to find Jesus, and the, the disciples, they go out and they look for him. And they find him. And they say to him that the crowds have gathered, everyone's looking for you. But Jesus' response is this in verse 38. Let us go somewhere else, to the nearby villages, so I can preach there also. That is why... Excuse me, that is why I've come. So here's an example in the Bible of Jesus choosing to move on and not meet the physical needs of those gathered. But rather, he continued to preach the good news to the surrounding villages, to preach the gospel and fulfill the purpose and plan that was laid out for him. And this now brings us to our text. In verse 1 and 2, a few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. So Jesus has returned to Capernaum, and Mark records it as his home. Uh, and most scholars believe that it was the home of Peter. But the, the reference to home is probably more to reflect the location that Jesus based himself in uh, during his earthly ministry. Once again, the crowds, they've returned. They've heard that he's back. They've rushed in. They've filled the inside of this house and around the house also. And Jesus begins to preach the word. And then we see in verse 3 and 4 that this paralyzed man, who's being assisted by four other men, he's trying to get to Jesus. But because of the crowd, it's proving a very difficult task. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't know why people wouldn't have let this man through. Why common politeness wouldn't have kicked in. Why people wouldn't make a way for this man who cannot walk. Get him through to Jesus. Get him through to the one that could heal him. I have to, I have to surmise that most likely selfishness played a big part in this. People were most likely there seeking a healing for themselves. 
They were there to see Jesus, but last time they gathered, well, he took off and he left to go to the surrounding villages. And so they didn't want to miss out this time. It's, uh, it's also uh, possible that there was people there that were there for the show. As I mentioned before, people, we love, we love amazing things. We get excited by amazing things. And Jesus was doing amazing things. It's most likely that they didn't, they didn't want to miss out, so they, they weren't giving up their seat. So these men, they go to the extreme and they decide to, to dig up the roof and get this paralysed man to Jesus. Now, it's a pretty extraordinary plan, and it's one I think would have caused quite a bit of commotion. And without going into great detail, if I could get you to imagine a hole big enough for a man who's laying down on a mat to be made in the roof above where Jesus was preaching, well, it's a pretty big hole. It's going to cause a lot of mess. The structure would have been made from clay and, and mud and, and straw. And this would have rained down on everybody, including Jesus. What a distraction that this would have caused. And to think today, some people get a little bit upset uh, at a, maybe a, a small child crying in the back row of a church. Here these men are smashing their way through the roof to get this man to Jesus. I'm certain per- people would have been annoyed at this and I have to wonder what Peter might have been thinking about his home. But I'm sure the response from people watching this take place would have been varied from anger to annoyance to amazed and intrigued and keen to see what happens next. Well, Jesus' response is one that I think nobody saw coming. In verse 5, Jesus says when, he, it says, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralysed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. That's a, an incredible thing to say. Son, your sins are forgiven. I'm not sure that's what the crowd was expecting to hear. I'm not sure what, that's what the four men that carried this paralysed man to Jesus were expecting him to hear. But this is by far the biggest miracle in this story. Now, this man, he, he entered from death to life, having his sins forgiven. He's been given a right standing before a holy and righteous God. He believed upon and put his faith in Jesus and he received eternal life. But as we move into the next few verses, we see what is, in my opinion, the pinnacle of this story. It's the apex Now, some teachers of the law were sitting there, thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts, and he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Now, it's really easy for us as New Testament readers to be harsh on these teachers, on these scribes. Uh, We're often quick to be judgmental on them, uh, as we see that they have several encounters with Jesus throughout the New Testament, and it never really ends nicely for them. But in this case, uh, they weren't wrong. Uh, They were exactly right in their thinking. God alone is the only one who can forgive sin. The Old Testament is filled with God's declaration of forgiveness. And they would have known this. Uh, This is what they would have been taught. This is what they themselves would have been teaching. 
So immediately, these teachers would have been faced with a dilemma. Um, either this man, Jesus, is a blasphemer or he's God. There's no middle ground. There's uh, no grey area. There's no other option. He's either one or the other. A blasphemer or he's God. Today, we associate blasphemy as, as using the Lord's name in vain, whether it be God the Father, God the Son, or God the Spirit. We know it's wrong. But for the Jews, hearing Jesus make this claim that he had the authority to forgive sin it is a claim to be God. The highest of blasphemies, if it weren't true. The Jews only had the Old Testament, and they understood God to be one. And a revelation of a triune God was not yet upon them. But the mere fact that Jesus calls them out on this, that he knew in his spirit what they were thinking, that he somehow read their minds and revealed them, revealed it to them, surely that would have caused them great distress. As teachers, they would have known that God knows the hearts of all men. First Chronicles 28.9, we see that the Lord searches every heart and he understands every desire and every thought. And in 1 Samuel 16.7, it says, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at his height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Well, see, Jesus, he just looked at their hearts. He looked at their thoughts, and he revealed them to everybody who was there. Who can do that but God? And Jesus continues to say in verse 9, which is easier, to say to this paralysed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat and walk, but I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. In baseball terms, Jesus has just smacked a home run. Uh, if he had a microphone, I'd say that's where he would have just dropped it and walked away. At least that's what I would have done. Um, it's, it's easy to say that your sins are forgiven. There's no way to prove it or disprove it. Uh, it could have been lip service, a throwaway line. But here, Jesus, he backs it up by performing this great miracle. To show everyone who he is and to show what authority he has the authority to forgive sins. As I mentioned in my introduction, um, too easily we can look at these miracles that Jesus performed and long to see that same demonstration of his physical power in our own lives. There's so many modern ministries today are focused on this. Uh, promoting healings if you just give us a little bit of money. Uh, you can be healed if you just have enough faith. They focus on your physical afflictions, on your physical needs, while paying very little attention to your greatest need. The need to be in a right standing before a holy and righteous God. And sadly, millions of people today flock to these meetings, just as they did in Jesus' time. I have no doubt that the paralysed man would have longed for physical healing. And it's not wrong to want those things at all. His life would have been at the mercy of everyone around him. He would have no way to look after himself, no way to work or gather food. 
No promising future in store. His outlook would have been bleak. And despite all that, he had an even greater burden upon him, and it's the same burden we all share. And that's the inadequacy to atone for our own sin. To know that there's no righteousness that would be found in us. We're all guilty as charged. And our only hope is the same hope that he had, which was to throw himself down at the feet of Jesus and place his trust in him. But here's something I'd like you to think about. It was his affliction that brought about his encounter with Jesus. Would he have even been in Capernaum had he been able-bodied? Would he have heard those words, son, your sins have given, had he not been bedridden? Miracles, they don't bring about faith. In fact, miracles were primarily done to show authority. We see that in both Jesus and the apostles. In and around Capernaum is where Jesus performed most of his miracles and yet they didn't believe. It's recorded in Matthew eleven twenty three. 23, Jesus talking about Capernaum. He says, and you, Capernaum, will you be lifted to the heavens? No, you will go down to Hades. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. So friends, there is healing in the atonement. And that healing is the forgiveness of sin. Sin is ultimately the reason why we have affliction and disease. Why we have calamities, why we have breakdowns of relationships, why we face hardships. And we know this from the fall of man, that sin entered the world and along with it death. As believers, affliction and suffering are to be expected. We're not exempt from that. Does God care about our situations? Absolutely. Does God still physically heal today? Absolutely. Do all believers today receive physical healing? No. Does God answer every prayer? I believe he does. But sometimes I think the answer might be no. But to be more accurate for the one who's placed their faith in Jesus, the answer is more likely to be no for now. But as we move into the last verse of the text today, verse 12, he got up, he took his mat, and he walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. There were so many things that came out of the physical healing, but I'd, I'd just like to list three things here that I think stand out. One, obviously the paralysed man, he was healed, and his life was changed forever. Jesus proclaimed his deity in other words, he made his claim to be God and he showed us that he has the authority to forgive sin. And thirdly, we see from verse 12 that glory was given to God. And that ultimately is our purpose, that God be glorified. He's glorified through physical healings, but he's also glorified through the redemptive work of Christ in each and every person who comes to faith. You might be facing a heavy affliction today. 
something that may be weighing you down greatly. It might be affecting your physical health, your mental health, your general well-being. And we should be praying for you. We should all be praying for you. But can I encourage you with the words that Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 4.16. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. I'm looking forward to the day when we receive our glorified bodies, when he takes away every sickness, when he wipes away every tear, when we get to realise the full reality of death being defeated, all because Christ took care of our greatest need first, because he has the authority to forgive sin. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you that he has the authority to forgive sin. Lord, we thank you that we are able to put our trust in him, Lord, and be made right with you. Father, for those that are facing affliction today, Lord, those of us here, Lord, that have some problem in our life, Lord, we pray, Father, for healing. Lord, we ask for comfort. And Lord, we ask for strength. But above all, Lord, we ask that through you and through their affliction, Lord God, that you would be glorified. We give you great glory and pray. Amen.